this morning, though, we turn the corner and head on, we're on the home stretch, just got a few more installments in this series, and we're going to spend that time on one of the most famous events in all of the Bible and all of biblical history. You know it simply and as Daniel in the lion's den, and that's where we are. So you can mark your place in Daniel chapter 6. Living for Christ in a hostile culture is becoming more and more a reality. In fact, uh, a writer, a Christian writer who writes for uh, a publication called First Things and other publications, which is kind of a, a Christian think tank for the arts and culture and morality and culture, his name is Aaron Wren, and in February he published a piece where he talked about how culture has shifted in its perspective and its treatment toward Christians. Uh, and he says, for a long time, for the majority of Western culture, we, uh, uh, culture had a positive perspective on Christians and Christianity. Even people that weren't Christians thought of Christians in a positive way. And then he says, roughly in the late 80s, early 90s, it shifted to a more neutral position. That is to say, people didn't care a whole lot. Now, now honestly, I think there's a lot of overlap between those, and you'll, you'll, you'll find that to be true as well. But he makes a good point that people went from being positive to being relatively neutral about Christianity and Christians in our culture. But then he notes that since 2014, hostility toward Christianity has been kicked into hyperdrive. Now the general overall perception of Christians in our culture is negative. It's not cool to be a Christian anymore. And many people who are public figures that are Christians would rather people not even know that they're Christians than to be confronted by what comes next. And we've seen the fallout, for example, from overturning Roe versus Wade. We've seen the fallout that negativity has been escalated even to violence and vitriol in our culture in an extraordinary and astounding way. He's right. That's the way our culture is headed. We are cons uh, more increasingly living for Christ in a hostile culture. And more and more, you and I will have to make our decisions and make our stand increasingly in this hostile culture, make our stand for Christ, make our decisions, sometimes even day by day, about living for Christ in this increasingly hostile culture. But it's also possible that you're living in a microcosm of that hostility, that you've seen the same changes take place, but maybe it's at the workplace, maybe it's in your friendships, in your family, maybe it's at school. You, you're living a microcosm uh, of relationships that have grown increasingly hostile toward you. That's exactly what's happened to Daniel in the book of Daniel and in chapter 6. Now, I need to give you a little bit of background to where we're at because the book of Daniel uh, fast-forwards decades by the time we get to chapter 6. If you'll recall, when we started the study in Daniel, uh, Daniel and his three friends were teenagers, actually what we would call middle schoolers, maybe 13 or 14, carried off to Babylon, and there they were in, uh, instituted into, we might call it the University of Babylon. They were handpicked by the king uh, to learn the language, to learn the culture, to study the history of Babylon, so they could serve the king in the king's court and in the government. They were stand out. Brilliant young men, handpicked for that purpose. Time goes on and we meet Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego now as young men when they are confronted twice and pressured to compromise their faith. First, uh, whether or not they would bow down to the golden idol and then whether or not they would stand their ground even if it meant being cast into a fiery furnace. Of course, God rescues them 
The Son of God himself meets them in the furnace and rescues them. Now we fast forward decades. Where we're going to pick up in the story this morning, Daniel is in his 80s. He is a seasoned man of faith. Which tells us for all these intervening years, he's been living for his God faithfully in the hostile culture. He has a reputation, a good reputation, for living for Christ, living for his God in a hostile culture. He's well respected, even admired in the Babylonian culture. Now in the meantime, uh, as you might expect in these decades that have passed, Babylon itself has changed internally. Nebuchadnezzar dies. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar's been the king so far. Well, he dies. His son comes to power, but for reasons historians have never known, Nebuchadnezzar's son, Nabonidus, never lived in Babylon. Instead, he chose to live in Arabia. So in his place, uh, a ruler was put in Babylon named Belshazzar. And we meet Belshazzar in the book of Daniel briefly because uh, God judges him for blasphemy in the book of Daniel, and Belshazzar dies. Well, at about the same time, and as we come into the story, it's 539 B.C., and another empire has risen in the ancient Near East and in the Mediterranean. It's called the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes and the Persians have come together, and they have grown an extraordinary empire. And in 539 B.C., they come against Babylon, and they actually take Babylon virtually without a fight. There really is no war whatsoever. And the reason for that is, in the intervening years, Babylon has been disintegrating internally. Pay attention to this. Once a great empire, it's rusting and degrading morally and ethically and literally falling apart on the inside. So when an, another army invades, they don't care. They don't have an army to stop them. And the Medo-Persian Empire expands itself and takes over Babylon. That's where we pick up in Daniel chapter 6 because we're going to meet a new king in Daniel 6. The Persian, the Medo-Persian king named Darius. Now, I need to Insert here a little bit more history because it's very important to biblical history to understand this. And if you know your Bible very well, you'll, you'll recognize right away what I'm talking about. Darius actually has two names in the Bible and in history. He is Darius and he is Cyrus. He's Darius the Mede, where we meet him in Daniel. And, and that's the name Daniel chose to use when he recorded the story. And he is Cyrus the Great elsewhere. Now the reason we know that so well, uh, he has two names, which was not uncommon in the ancient world. Right? The reason he has two names, one's a, a Persian name, the other from the Medes, is because his parents were from each. He had one parent that was Persian and one that was a Mede. So he's Darius the Mede and he's called Cyrus the Great. The interesting thing about Cyrus the Great, as he's known mostly in the Bible, is he was very favorable toward the Jews. And just about this same time, even though it's not mentioned in this story, or in the book of Daniel, at about the same time as this takes place, Cyrus the Great permitted the Jews to return to their homeland. 
That's where the books of Ezra and Nehemiah pick up and some other statements in the Bible. It's actually what Jeremiah prophesied. Remember in Jeremiah 29, the prophet Jeremiah wrote a letter on behalf of God to the people in exile and he told them, build your homes there, have your families there, live your life in Babylon because I have for you a future and a hope. A lot of Christians like that passage, don't we? Jeremiah 29, I have for you a purpose, a future and a hope, but we forget it was written to people in exile. In Babylon. Well, Daniel knows all this, and history bears it out that Cyrus the Great sent the Jews home. He let them go home. The Bible records all that. So keep in mind that Darius the Mede is Cyrus the Great, and he is very favorable toward the Jews. But he has also just come to power. And what we're going to see happen in this story Daniel chapter 6, is that Daniel, for all his wisdom and for his age and for his faith and for his glowing reputation in Babylon, he has enemies. And what's heartbreaking is that he has worked alongside these same people for years, maybe decades. What's heartbreaking is they know him so well and yet they turn against him. We're calling them this morning antagonists. Because all of us have these kinds of antagonists in our lives. We have people in our lives that we know well, and they know us well, and yet they turn against us, and there's some trigger point, there's some event, there's some uh, moment that they decide they are against us, and they become unrelenting in their antagonism toward us. It's that microcosm of your faith where, where neutral, sometimes it's positive, then it's neutral, and suddenly it turns to hostility and Maybe what's going on in your family, in your school, in that friend group you have, and someone has turned against you and you recognize them this morning as an antagonist in your life. For Daniel, it was at the workplace. People he'd worked with all these years, and they suddenly turn against him because of his faith. That's really what it's all about. It's because of his faith. This morning and for the installments coming up, I want you to keep two things in mind. They're very important. Keep two things in mind. One is, this story is here to remind you that the problem people have is not with you, it's with Jesus. If you're a faithful follower of Christ, this story is here to encourage you, to strengthen you, to inspire you, to live for Christ in a hostile culture, and to remember the problem people have, if you're living for Christ, their problem is not with you, it's with Jesus. And if you are faithful to Christ, antagonists will rise up and often come after you because of your faith. In Christ. The second thing to remember in this installment and those coming up, and, and this applies not only biblically, it applies to our whole lives, but it's taught frequently in Scripture. It's a powerful principle. The way you live today determines how you respond tomorrow. The way you live today, the habits you develop, the behaviors in your life, the way you think today will determine how you respond tomorrow and how you respond when the culture turns hostile against your faith in Christ. How you respond is determined by the way you're living today. You'll see what I mean this week and in the installments coming up. So this morning, join me in Daniel chapter 6. Daniel chapter 6. We're going to start reading at verse 1. And what you're going to see, the motivating factor, the trigger that turns co-workers into antagonists in this story is jealousy. 
jealousy because Daniel gets a promotion. Darius thinking it's a great time to do something new, but not knowing the environment fully well, sets up a situation that raises the ire of these antagonists. The Bible says, Darius decided to appoint 120 satraps over the kingdom stationed throughout the realm. Now let me pause right there. What they're talking about, the kingdom is so vast, it's actually categorized or segmented into what we might call regions, but very large regions. So what Darius does is he reorganizes the government so that he has this particular officer, a person called a satrap, over each region. So there's 120 such regions throughout his empire. Verse 2. And over the three of them, administrators, including Daniel. So over 120, he raises up three that will be administrators over these satraps. He's a good organizer, a good delegator. And one of those administrators is Daniel. Now these satraps will be accountable to the administrators so that the king would not be defrauded. People are money hungry, and if they're posted hundreds of miles away from the palace and from where the money has to go, they might just have sticky fingers. So the administrators are to hold these satraps accountable. Daniel distinguished himself above the administrators and satraps, listen, because he had an extraordinary spirit. So the king planned to set him over the whole realm. The administrators, satraps, therefore kept trying to find a charge against Daniel regarding the kingdom. But they could find no charge or corruption for he was trustworthy and no negligence or corruption was found in him. Then these men said, we will never find any charge against this Daniel unless we find something against him concerning the law of his God. Uh, let me pause here. That's the moment the antagonist becomes a persecutor. Verse 6. So the administrators and satraps went together to the king and said to him, May King Darius live forever. All the administrators of the kingdom, the prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an edict that for 30 days anyone who petitions any god or man except you, the king, will be thrown into the lion's den. That is, anyone who petitions or prays to a god other than the king will be thrown into the lion's den. Therefore, your majesty established the edict and signed the document so that as a law of the Medes and Persians, it is not irrevocable and cannot be changed. So King Darius signed the written edict. It's jealousy that launches this attack. And you can, you can appreciate and understand, many of us can. These are co-workers. They've been on the same level playing field with Daniel. They know him well. They know his reputation, his integrity, his honesty. And yet they launched this attack against him. And the trigger, the, the turning point, is that King Darius recognizes the value of Daniel and promotes him to a position he creates above everyone else. Not only are there three administrators and 120 satraps, now there's Daniel. Over all of them, Daniel to hold them all accountable. And suddenly this group of men are infuriated by this. And his co-workers come out of the nest and reveal themselves to be antagonists. They reveal their true character. Uh, I, I found for the first time since I've lived in the house, Kim and I have lived in here 17 years, I found a yellow jacket nest in the ground in my backyard. And that's not too terribly surprising. It's the way I found it. I mowed over it. 
Just about a week ago, I was out in my backyard, and I was mowing with my walk-behind mower. I wasn't even on the riding mower. Zipped around and mowed over that. And, and, and have you had this experience? Suddenly you go, something's not right. And in probably two seconds, I was in the garage with my door closed, swatting yellow jackets off of me and wondering, then it, then it comes to mind, as you're standing in your garage, I wonder if the neighbors saw that. <laughs> me flailing my arms like a scared girl as I ran into, no offense to the girl, as I ran into the, uh, to the garage. I don't know how long they'd been there. We'd been on pretty good terms up to that moment. But I triggered their antagonism. They came out of the nest in full force. Have you had that experience with people in your life? We're fine with each other. We're not bothering each other. In fact, often it seems like we get alone, get along just fine. And then something happens. Something changes. And often it, it really isn't you that does it, or maybe it is you because you're being honest, you're being faithful, you're living for Christ. And that person that was neutral or maybe even positive suddenly becomes an antagonist in your life. Always remember, it's not you that's the problem. It's Jesus that's really the problem. And the habits you build today will determine how you respond tomorrow. I want to go back into the text and we're going to look at the antagonists in the face. Now you'll recognize them in your own life. You'll, you'll recognize their behavior. But I want you to see with me their behavior and, because this is the setup for what happens with Daniel and the lion's den. How do they behave? How do they act? What, what is always true of antagonists in your life? Look at this with me. First of all, antagonists despise righteous character. They despise godly character because your godly character reveals their lack of character. They, come, they decide, they, they get jealous of Daniel and they decide they want to remove him from that position. They don't want him in that position. So the first thing that we are told is they seek to dig up dirt. Now you'll remember the reason Darius picked him is summarized in this phrase. He had an extraordinary spirit. And if you dig into the text, even look at the original language, that's exactly what it means. Daniel had an extraordinary or exceptional spirit. It's a summary of the man's personality, his mindset, uh, and just his overall way of thinking and behaving. It's a summary of, of 80 years of this man following God and living for Christ and building a reputation. It's a summary of the way Darius sees him now that he has inherited Daniel from the previous government, the previous empire. It's a very positive way of looking at Daniel. Uh, and everything you can imagine goes with that. People like Daniel. Daniel's wise. Daniel's brilliant. Daniel's learned. Daniel is honest. Everything that goes with it. He had an exceptional personality. He's one of those people that immediately rises to the top. He's one of those people that you gravitate to in a room. We might put it this way in our day and time. He was larger than life. Everybody knew, you know who Daniel, oh yeah, everybody knows who Daniel the Jew is, Daniel the Hebrew, we all know who he is. Everybody likes Daniel. Hard to find something against somebody. And a lot of times the antagonist thinks, well nobody's that good. 
right? Nobody's that good. So they immediately go after his character. We're told first they look for corruption in his life. In other words, they seek to dig up dirt in his life. They can't find anything in his life. His life, his lifestyle for 80 years, he's lived a righteous, clean life. There's nothing to compromise him in his life. The Apostle Peter once told Christians, make sure you live with a clear conscience. That is, there's nothing, no dirt to dig up in your life as a follower of Christ. Make sure you live with a clear conscience, he said, so when they slander you, when the antagonists come after you, they will be put to shame. Let's pause there. How are you doing with that? If someone wanted right now to dr- drill into your life to see what they could uncover to invalidate your faith. Oh yeah, she says he's a, she's a Christian. He says he's a Christian, but look at this. Is it there? Would they find it? Not in Daniel. No corruption whatsoever. And this is coming from the antagonist. And then they say, look at this, he's honest. He has integrity. Which means they don't. And there's no negligence. You know what that means? That means he's been doing his job plus for all these years. Even in his employee evaluations, they couldn't find anything wrong. There's nothing to find in Daniel. But they despise him now even more because he is a man of character and he is a man of righteous and godly character. You know know what this teaches, don't you? It teaches you're doing the right thing. Live for Christ. And you say, well, I thought if I lived for Christ and I had honest character and I had godly character in my life, people would like that. Nobody would bother me. Listen, antagonists come after you. Because your character reveals their lack of character. The Apostle Paul wrote one time, Everyone who strives for godly character in Jesus Christ will be persecuted. As far as I can tell, you and I are included in everyone. So what does that mean? Does that mean we back off from godly character? That we compromise to the culture and to the antagonist? Absolutely not. You live for Christ. You live for Christ. It's the right thing to do. And build that godly character now because that will determine how you respond later. But first of all, they despise that righteous character. Second thing you see is antagonists manipulate the truth. This is the most frustrating part about having an antagonist inserted in your life or an antagonist in your life that you know from work or school or even the family. They like to manipulate the truth. So finding nothing else to come against Daniel, they they approach Darius, King Darius, and they offer for this new king an opportunity for him to shine in the spotlight, to sign an edict that everyone will petition him for 30 days rather than one of their gods. And when they come to him and say this, this is how they present it. Oh, King Darius, we've asked all of the government officials, all the satraps, all the administrators, everybody, we've asked everyone, we've surveyed 120 satraps throughout the, throughout the empire of the nation, and everybody's in agreement you should do this. No, they're not. And even if these guys had surveyed 120, if they'd taken time to ride out or ride through the empire, which would have taken months to do, and survey everyone, Daniel doesn't know 
It's an outright lie. It's an outright lie designed to groom the king, to pat him on the back. Everybody thinks it's a good idea for you to do this. Do you know why antagonists and persecutors manipulate the truth? It's so they can change the narrative. Think about this. Because whoever owns the narrative owns the culture. Whoever owns the narrative can shape the culture. That's true. And if they have to do it by falsehood, that's what they will do. As soon as Roe v. Wade was overturned and and sent back to the states, as soon as that happened, you probably heard on major networks that states that had abortion laws, restrictions in place that would activate those abortion laws and restrictions. And you probably heard on many national news uh, outlets that that meant women would be in danger because there would be no way for them to get an abortion or, or, or in any way. And in emergency services, they would have to drive across state lines to find somewhere they could get an abortion. That's absolutely not true. I can't, I can't name all the states, but I can tell you this. 13 of those states that had abortion restrictions are ready to be activated. Every single one of them included in those laws and includes in those laws today exceptions for emergencies for the mother. Every one of them. But see, antagonists know whoever controls the narrative controls the culture. So antagonists are quickly glad to manipulate the truth in every situation. And you probably know people like this in your life. And if you've ever been on the receiving end, or you are right now, of an antagonist, you know what that's like. And another thing they like to do, because they know their strength in numbers, another thing they'll do is they'll come to you and they'll say something like, everybody's, everybody agrees with me. Everybody, and and I hate to tell you this, pastors hear this all the time. It's a staple of our career. I've been been a pastor for 30 years. I can't count how many times someone wanted to come and criticize me or criticize the church or criticize a program or ministry, and their starting statement was something like, I've talked to a lot of people and everybody agrees. No, I'm serious. Now, I don't drill into that to find out if it's true. It's probably not. Their spouse probably agrees because they want to get some sleep. But the antagonist knows their strength in numbers. And one way to try to apply that strength is to manipulate the truth. If you've had this happening, have this happening in your life or you've had it happen, you know how heartbreaking that can be because if it's someone you know and who knows you well, someone you work with, someone in your family, And you know they're twisting the truth. You know they're manipulating the truth. And you know even they're manipulating the truth about who you are, your character, your walk with Christ, how heartbreaking that is. So how do you respond? First, you walk with Christ. You practice godly character. And second, you always revere the truth. You always revere the truth. Where does manipulating the truth come from? Jesus tells us this. John chapter 8. His definition of Satan, he's a father of lies and there's no truth in him. Just like we understand from Scripture that all truth ultimately has its origination in God's character, all lies ultimately have their origination in Satan's character. Satan cannot but lie. He has no truth in him. God cannot but tell the truth. He has no falsehood in him. The Bible says that, Titus chapter 1 verse 2. So it all originates there. That's why the antagonist moves so rapidly 
from manipulating the truth to targeting your faith. And that's what happens next. But remember, they will manipulate the truth. And you think to yourself, well, that's not fair. Well, you know, there's not a scripture where Jesus says, don't worry, it's always going to be fair. Because it's not. People are sinners. And the truth in the hands of a sinner can quickly become a lie. So what do you and I do? Remember, live for Christ, godly character, revere the truth, stand for the truth, and let God do a work. We're going to see that coming up, but watch for God to work. You know why? Because God loves the truth. God loves the truth. But that does bring me to the third thing we see about antagonists. The third thing we see is they target your faith. They target your faith. This is where antagonism moves to persecution. So in their conversation with King Darius, uh, this is their proposal. Darius, you're new to the kingdom. We want you to to start off well. So here's a great way to start. Write an edict, a royal edict, a decree, that says for 30 days, if anyone prays, that is petitions, they must petition to you, not to any other god. But to you, Darius, new to the kingdom, thinks this is a great idea. Now remember, he thinks favorably of the Jews and he thinks favorably of Daniel, but he doesn't realize that he himself is getting set up. Because when a king, a Persian king, signed a decree, listen, even the king could not rescind that decree until it played out. In fact, it's stated. That's what they say to him. Sign this so it, will, it cannot be taken away. For 30 days, anyone who petitions must petition you. He doesn't know Daniel or the Jews well enough to know this is a setup, but Daniel's co-workers know. And unlike with the golden idol and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, They're not trying to pressure Daniel to compromise. They don't want Daniel to compromise. They want Daniel to get killed. They want him out of the picture. In the ancient world, many kings housed lions. In fact, history tells us that in Solomon's temple, uh, as a staple of his temple, and as a representation of the lion of the tribe of Judah, Solomon actually had live lions on each side of his throne. I don't know who their handlers were or how often they had to be replaced. But kings of the ancient world, it was a a statement of privilege and power to house lions. So it's not a far stretch to see them use those lions as punishment if needed. The Romans used them in the Colosseum to kill Christians. Darius writes in his decree, anyone who petitions any other god, but me for 30 days will be thrown into the lion's den. If it moves forward, the antagonists are going to come after you because of your faith. They manipulate the truth, and they actually manipulate Daniel's faith. They they use his faith against him in this situation. Uh, This is not... The king doing it against Daniel, this is Daniel's co-workers, friends. Maybe we would say family, students he goes to school with. And it's all because of his faith. 
and they know it. So they attack it. They target it. We see this in culture now all the time. Heaven forbid Christians should live for Christ in a public position, in a political position, in a prominent position. As Aaron Ben said, now we see Christians in public policy trying to hide the fact that they're Christians. Sad. Because the antagonist will come after us. And likely they may have already come after you. It will get increasingly more hostile in our culture. And our faith will be under attack more and more. So how do you respond? You live for Christ. You live faithfully for Christ. And remember, don't antagonize the antagonists. There's no reason to do that. You remember Jesus said, if they hate you, remember they hated me first. Remember that. Because you're not the problem for them. It's Jesus. It's Jesus they despise. And when you live for Christ, it's likely they'll come after you. But as this story bears out, remember, God is always bigger than the antagonist. He is always greater than the persecutor. And he never leaves you, and he never forsakes you for any reason. Uh, actor Chris Pratt has skyrocketed to fame in Hollywood, uh, has, an, has a new series on uh, Amazon uh, based on a Navy SEALs novels. He's just as popular as he can be. And if you know Pratt well, you know he's a Christian. Uh, and he's talked about Christ openly at award ceremonies. He, he's talked about God. But he's one of those Christians that also wants everybody to know that, that he loves everybody. He's, you know, he's, he's, I'm not questioning his salvation, but he, he has a real problem with anybody thinking that, that uh, he's not a nice guy. Uh, recently, he was interviewed, and if, if you know the stories surrounding him, his, his actor friends have stood for him uh, in, the, in the course of quite a bit of controversy because it came out on social media that he was attending a church and participating in a church where the, where the pastor actually preached that homosexuality was a sin. And this was huge firestorm about it, and they, and they wanted Chris Pratt canceled taken out of all of his movies. They wanted Marvel to fire him. This was a couple of years ago. And all this went on. And it's still trickling along to this day. Well, Chris Pratt was recently interviewed about it. And he said, first of all, I never actually went to that church. That's not the church I go to. He said, I go to a church that loves everybody. In other words, doesn't preach homosexual behavior as a sin. That's the church I go to. So I want everybody to know I love. But then he said something interesting. He said, I cannot for the life of me figure out why they're coming after me. Let that sink in. I cannot figure out why they're coming after me. Well, Chris, I could tell you why they're, coming at, why they're coming after you because of the perception that you're a Christian in Hollywood. And Hollywood is already a culture that's hostile to Christianity. All you have to do is go to church in Hollywood and you're under attack. It's a microcosm of our greater world. You don't think it's coming? It's coming. But always remember to live for Christ. You're doing the right thing. If you're embroiled in it now, live for Christ. Respectfully, peacefully, lovingly, but live for Christ. And remember, the habits you develop today will determine how you respond tomorrow.
I want to pray for us as believers, pray for you at home, pray that we would stand firm in those situations. And if you've got an antagonist in your life, and that antagonist might be turning to a persecutor, I'm going to pray for you as well. Lovingly but firmly live for Christ. And remember, for the lost world around us, it's Jesus that matters most. Not us, but Jesus that matters most. So I'm going to pray for us believers in Christ. And I'm going to pray for you, maybe in-house or at home. If you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, I want to invite you to, to pray to receive Jesus today as your Lord and your Savior, to be forgiven of your sins, to walk with Christ through this world and into eternity and trust Him as your Savior. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, in this room or at home, God, maybe there's some of us that right now have antagonists in our lives for no other reason than we seek to live faithfully for Christ. God, I pray for us that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that he would give us that strength and confidence, that we would remember you are the same God today, the same God that David walked with, that Moses walked with, that Gideon walked with, and you are the same God that Daniel walked with in his lifetime. So God, stand with us today. Fill us with your spirit. Give us courage, confidence in the moment, God. Help us to, to live for Christ and godly character, to revere and stand for the truth. And in all things, God, to remember that people persecuted Jesus. So if we live for Christ, they'll persecute us. I pray for us now, God, those of us in that kind of situation. I pray you give us wisdom and insight through this, Father. But above all, let us know of your presence, your power, your strength in our lives right now. And God, we pray the truth would be borne out. Just as we'll see in the story of Daniel, we pray, Father, for us, the truth would come to light. The truth would be borne out right now in our lives today. And Father, if there's one who needs Christ as their Savior, I pray today, God, as you infiltrate our hearts, you show us our sin, that today they would trust Jesus Christ as their Lord and their Savior. To pray this prayer of faith with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. And I know I can't save myself. I've tried to be good. I've even been religious. But I can't save myself. So Jesus, I repent of my sin. I, I confess that I'm a sinner. Repent of my sin. And I believe you died on the cross for me and you're alive today. Jesus, come into my heart and into my life. I ask in faith you would cleanse me of sin and give me eternal life. And it's in Jesus' name.